Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part two on the science of anti-gravity, the son of the late Dr. Frederick Elzefon discusses his father's work. A tall stranger walked up to me and he said, are you related to Dr. Frederick Elzefon? I said, yeah, he's my father. And he shook my hand and said, oh, glad to meet you. Did you know that the CIA contracted with 17 mathematicians to study your father's 1981 paper? And you know what they concluded? I said, well, that's news to me. And he said, well, they concluded that every equation was correct. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Dr. Frederick Elzefon would be most proud of his son, I'm sure, for continuing his legacy and trying to bring anti-gravitics to the world if he could only get people with power and influence to stand up and take notice. This is part two of our ongoing series on anti-gravity science, and today we're going to unravel some of the top 10 UFO riddles. David Elzefon is a technical writer and the son of Dr. Frederick Elzefon, inventor of gravity control. From the mid-1950s through 2012, David had a ringside seat in the development of the technology and actively searched for investors in Silicon Valley from 1981 through 2012. In the six years following his father's death, David has ramped up his efforts to publicize his father's discoveries with the publication of two books, Gravity Control with Present Technology and The Top 10 UFO Riddles, Solutions from Science. More than anyone alive, David understands the theoretical basis of the technology and why it is met with so much resistance from establishment physics, in spite of being endorsed in a 1960 report by the U.S. Air Force and the overwhelming favorable impression his father made upon knowledgeable critics. David Elzefon, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. You've had a very busy week. How are you? I'm, I'm just great. I'm tired, but I'm, I've never been better. And we should uh, let people know you just uh, returned from Spokane, Washington, where you were one of the featured speakers at uh, the Energy Science and Technology Conference, which takes place just outside of Spokane in uh, across the border in Idaho, 
which is put together every year by uh, a terrific inventor, terrific guy, Aaron Murakami. And uh, how did your presentation go over? Well, you know, I was pre I was preparing for it from weeks ago until three in the morning before I spoke at 8 a.m. and I thought I was going to walk onto the stage an absolute zombie, but I guess the adrenaline kicked in and I gave a pretty good talk and it was well received. And I'd say for the rest of the day, I was shaking hands and talking to people about uh, my dad's technology. Some of them were merely curious and some of them wanted to back uh, further research. Now, this is your return visit. We just had you on recently, uh, and this is going to be kind of an ongoing series. Anti-Gravity Science, your father, of course, the late Dr. Frederick Elzefon, uh, who basically boiled it down to a, he had a, he had a formula uh, and demonstrated anti-gravitics in a, under laboratory conditions. He, he demonstrated where a mat or a, an object would lose mass. And this is what we discussed uh, the last time on the podcast. And, and you did a brilliant job of helping us visualize, you know, the science and understand it at a very basic level that your, that your father perfected. So the presentation at the conference, uh, I mean, did you, did you present the formula and, and everything that your, that your father had created? Oh, absolutely. I, um, since I didn't have a working device, and I think I told the story the last time, that the, the working device was assembled from oh, surplus uh, equipment plus a very expensive component called an electron paramagnetic resonance uh, device from uh, a laboratory in a, the chemistry lab in a well-known university in the Pacific Northwest, whose name I'm not, I'm not being coy about. I'm just afraid that somebody who worked on the project might still be working there and it might bring some heat down on them, and I don't want to do that. So um, <clears throat> the, um, the most expensive component was this EPR device, and they assembled the whole thing in the basement in a very short time and ran the experiments, and they uh, dramatically reduced the weight of a small sample of aluminum with iron um, particles embedded in it. And that's the whole idea. Once a, 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 an object loses mass, you're, mm -hmm. that's anti-gravity, right? You're, all, you're well on your way to... Um, I mean, what, what, what's the next step then? What's, what would be involved in, in going from there to creating a craft that could, in fact, levitate. Okay, no mistaking, no mistake about it. If you can control gravity and dial it up or dial it down, you can, um, you will break open the space frontier completely to all over the globe to all kinds of people ranging from, oh, I don't know, small to mid-range entrepreneurs on up to the, you know, the big money bags of the government and uh, corporations such as Big Oil. And uh, again, I want to say I think Big Oil, rather than being an enemy of this type of alternative energy, as they have been of other things, will be quick to embrace gravity control because they can make far more money with gravity control technology than, um, uh, use it, than with petrochemicals, with what they're doing now. And the business model is very much the same. Right. So, uh, yeah, so this is completely different from uh, alternative energy, yet it is a master key for unlocking 
the future uh, of technology because, well, let's suppose big oil is happy uh, pursuing space mining and other concerns out in space, which in some future program we'll probably detail, then that leaves the door open to all forms of alternative energy, such as we saw at the conference, and they will flourish unopposed, I suppose. And for those that are uh, interested in, in hearing the, the previous episode we did on um, anti-gravitic science, I direct them to episode 89. Episode 89, and there, uh, my guest, David Elzefon, goes into considerable detail in describing his father's uh, formula, the science behind anti-gravity. And this demonstration, uh, laboratory demonstration, took place, was it 1981? No, 1981 was the date when my dad read a paper at the 17th Joint Propulsion Conference in um, uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, which, by the way, was the site of Tesla's experimental station. <clears throat> which was, as far as I know, a coincidence, but it's an interesting coincidence. I'll say. Yeah. And so after that, he settled back and waited for the uh, business and industry and academia to come knocking at his door. And uh, he said it was like dropping a feather into the Grand Canyon. Nothing really happened. So he went out after grant money and he made proposals to business and to various wealthy uh people who might just be curious to have a flying saucer, and uh, still nothing happened. And finally, like the little red hen, he wound up doing it himself, and it worked as soon as they threw the switch. What would it take to scale your father's technology up so that you could levitate a large craft? Well, okay, once you've proven the effect in principle, you simply increase the power source and... uh, deploy it to the shell of a an aircraft. Now, when I say an aircraft, I mean it's perfectly uh, adaptable to terrestrial transportation, say what we are nowadays doing with uh, jet planes. But at the same time, with a little tweaking, uh, it can easily go into space because gravity is no barrier. You know, the main barrier to getting off the planet and opening the space frontier is simply gravity. It takes so much fuel to launch a rocket that um, by the time it gets, I'm sorry, by the time the rocket gets out there, it's burned up most of a 30-story uh, building, building's worth of solid fuel, and it has very little fuel left over for maneuvering. And so um, this is going to limit space travel, especially when you consider that the price of moving a Big Mac into space is around $3,000 when you prorate everything. <clears throat> so that's why the space frontier is not open right now. And when you look at the world's uh, GDP, practically zero is being contributed by space-based enterprises. But as soon as you get gravity control, it throws open the whole of outer space to uh, free enterprise, and you're going to see a, an economic boom the like of which you've never seen before. Now, I'll, I'll return to your question. How do you build a space vehicle? It's very simple. And <clears throat> let me say, I can at the same time, I can answer the time uh, age-old riddle of uh, why do aliens prefer flying saucers? Uh, the flying saucer shape happens to be the ideal deployment of the technology. 
So, as you know, it requires uh, two things. It's very simple. The constant magnetic field to cause electrons of the hull to precess like tops, and then a microwave uh, pulse uh, from the core of the craft through the top of the craft and down the sides to, um, to cause all of these electrons to tip over all at once. There's a certain frequency that you use. It's called the Larmor frequency. The details have been worked out, and they are presented in the book, um, Gravity Control with Present Technology. So uh, <clears throat> if I don't linger on the details but just gloss over those details, what you need is two things. Like I said, a steady magnetic field, a powerful magnetic field, and a, a powerful blast of um, microwave radiation. Now, both of these create side effects in organic... Uh, in organic um, materials such as we're composed of. So that's these account for many of the effects that people have reported when they get too close to a UFO that's taking off from a, you know, say they manage to bump into one that's sitting in a field somewhere and the occupants do an emergency takeoff, they're going to get a rate, the witnesses will get irradiated with microwave radiation and possibly the magnetic field has effects too. And they might get burned, or they might have ringing in their ears, or they might hear a humming sound. And Let me just stop you there, if I could, David. Uh, just yeah. a, a quick aside, because you mentioned the radiation being irradiated. I, not 20 minutes ago, I was doing an interview on a, on a radio station uh, because there was a, a recent UFO sighting in Quebec. And uh, I brought up a very famous Canadian UFO sighting, the 1967 Falcon Lake UFO incident in which this, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but this is just north of uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's so, it's so famous that our, our Canadian Mint issued a commemorative coin commemorating the 67 Falcon Lake incident. And that witness saw a cigar-shaped, two cigar-shaped craft. One landed on a flat rock. When it landed, it took on more of a saucer-type shape, and he was uh -huh. irradiated. And you can there are pictures of him. He's got these burns on his chest. Uh, and well, in fact, they found they found a radioactive piece of metal uh, in in the rock. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to give people an example of of that that this does happen and it has happened. So the uh, the other effects would be what <clears throat> the other effects um, heating. You might feel uh, that you're heating up from the inside because uh, you're being blasted by microwaves. Um, some uh, these effects might be uh, serious, but that's only if you're very close to the UFO. The occupants of the UFO, on the other hand, will be shielded by the cabin that they're in and the clothing that they wear. So, <clears throat> I'm sorry for, um, I'm getting over a cold. I caught a cold on the airplane like everybody does. Sure. The, the yeah. clothing is interesting because there have been people who claim to have seen alien bodies or aliens wearing the type of clothing that you're that you're referring to, as if it was some sort of a shielding device, metallic-looking clothing. Right. I, I believe that if the clothing was analyzed, they would find that it was made primarily of aluminum thread, and the purpose of that is to shield the um, the body of the uh, pilot or the occupant from ambient microwaves in the cabin, and also to conduct nuclear orientation, which is the net result of these two combined fields, to their body, because that nuclear orientation is the key to 
uh, dispersing gravitational energy, as I described the last time we spoke. Right. Okay, so now, now that we understand what must be done, we need a kind of a gigantic microwave oven. Um, the best the best conductor of a microwave field is, a, say, a radar antenna. That is a microwave broadcasting antenna. And as you know, that's a parabolic reflector. So you take one radar antenna, say in your left hand, and another radar antenna in your right hand, you clap them together, turn them sideways, and put a cabin on top. That is your flying saucer. And that's why they prefer that configuration of a vehicle. Uh -huh. it's, I really like telling that uh, analogy because um, uh, it turns flying saucers from something mysterious and possibly frightening into something, uh, another nuts and bolts machine that we could build ourselves right here on Earth. So, so E.T. also adheres to the old axiom, form follows function. Absolutely. And I'm sure they're, <laughs> they've long since mastered the art of that. But all of the different configurations of UFOs, and we've seen lots and lots of them over the years, do seem to have that uh, particular trait in common with the flying saucer, which is axial symmetry. There's uh, all of the parts of the saucer are at equal distance from a central axis. Even the equilateral triangles that are, have been seen a lot lately are a good example of that. Let me ask you about first another side effect, and that is missing time. The people that are in that have a close encounter, they're in, in close proximity. Is there anything about this technology that could account for time gaps, missing time? Um, well, not uh, a researcher named Jim McCampbell, who's uh, it's he died, I, I guess, in nine, in two thousand eight. Uh, Jim McCampbell, uh, who was a friend of my father's and also a past uh, president of the Nuclear Society of Northern California. He actually was interested in researching alien weaponry and, and what they might do to mess with people's minds, and uh, he decided that microwaves might figure into that too. And I, I hesitate to um, now go off on some kind of a tangent on, onto the weaponry because I haven't studied it that well, but a microwave, a microwave field can be designed so that it uh, blocks the um, nerve impulses that, say, come down your limbs, and that would paralyze you. And uh, this could also cause a lot of mental confusion. And so, um, yes, I'm sure that, that there are, there's an overlap between the technology, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Fascinating. So the, 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 the flying saucer shape... Uh, you've tackled, and we should point out you have a, a a book, Top Ten UFO Riddles. Yes. Solutions in Science. Mm -hmm. I don't expect you to, to to rattle off all ten because we want people to obviously to, to to buy the book and and support your work. Um, but give me a give me a two or three other of the the riddles that you tackle in this book regarding UFOs. Well, crop circles is a, a big area of curiosity these days. And uh, my dad wrote an article for the MUFON Journal in which he described exactly how to make a crop circle using the same technology that the uh, <coughs> same technology that the occupants are using for, or the visitors, or whatever you want to call them, are using to propel their vehicles. And uh, you might think of a crop circle as an ideal medium of communication because. They apparently have the ability to conjure up a lot of energy 
to uh, power their gravity effects and to fly through the air and so forth. But um, they have so much left over that they can apply the same technology to uh, making these dramatic inscriptions on the ground without getting out of their vehicles at all. They can project a magnetic, well, let me describe how to make a crop circle. Um, you, you, frequently we see orbs or little spheres uh, flying over the crops in, say, southern, south, southwest England. Yes, anyway, around yep. Salisbury, Salisbury Plain. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, the, one of the riddles solved is why they prefer the area, that particular area for making crop circles. And it has nothing to do with them being druids, by the way. Nothing to, <laughs> nothing to do with the aquifers underneath? Mm, kind of. Uh, it's ri the, the, the ground is rich in minerals, and yep. that would amplify the effect of, um, of broadcasting a microwave beacon down from the ship. But, um, okay, there's two steps to making a crop circle. <clears throat> Step one, you send down these little orbs, which are using the same technology to fly that the uh, bigger craft are using and they fly over the tops of the fields and they are releasing nanoparticles of iron onto the area of the crops and these nanoparticles of iron are found in the wake of a crop circle formation yes that's true I've heard that and what they're doing then is um, the orbs fly away after seeding the iron particles which are going to determine the shape of the crop circle and the, the, the ship that's hovering overhead, usually in a cloud, you know, they take advantage of bad weather to, uh, so they can get closer, and then they broadcast a microwave beam through the clouds, often causing uh, an illuminated column of light. Many of the um, crop circle witnesses who happen to be there when these crop circles form report a beam of light coming out of a cloud. Well, now I've just explained it. That beam of light is... Um, <clears throat> A microwave beam that's uh, uh, elevating the uh, quantum level of the, uh, the the molecules in the atmosphere to such a level that they glow. And then um, when that microwave beam hits the ground, it uh, it's going to drive the um, the precession of the electrons. Oh, they have to have a strong magnetic field too. And then when they broadcast the um, they broadcast the microwave beacon on top of the magnetic field. It drives the electrons of the, of the iron. And during the driving cycle, this increases the gravitational field. And so what you see is, first of all, a spiraling motion, which is characteristic of the magnetic field. All magnetic fields uh, do, uh, are broadcast in a kind of spiral motion. Like a vortex. Yes, exactly. And you see an increase in the gravitational force, such that... Well, if an animal happens to be trapped inside of a, um, of a crop circle when it forms, that animal will be crushed. And this has been seen actually in some Canadian uh, crop circles uh, where you have, uh, I guess it's um, porcupines, which defend themselves by hunkering down. Other animals feel it coming and run away. But the porcupine would hunker down and hunch its back and then get squashed. So... Typically, that's the kind, that's the type of animal you will see squashed inside of a crop circle. And then, the, so the effect of the swirling motion plus the gravity uh, increase creates the crop circle in a very short time, a matter of seconds. 
and also it causes the stems of the um, of the crop to explode. Right. And that, yeah, they we open- see the. Yeah, they, we, we see these these holes in, in the nodes or the uh, in the um, uh, in the grain, for example, like they've been blown out. Um, can can this also explain then why uh, um, why crop yields seem to improve inside a circle? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that feature of crop circles. I, I'm just going to admit I don't know what's going on there. Would it make sense, though, that if you were to subject them to that type of... Yes, absolutely. Now, this is something I learned at the ESTC um, conference, and Aaron Murakami was talking about it, and that is subjecting subjecting crops to electrical uh, fields increases their yield. There you go. Yeah. Well... Uh, that apparently has been studied inside crop circles. Significant yield increases from seeds that were inside a crop a crop circle. So, if you know how they're made, and uh, would you be able to replicate? Would you be able to create a device that create could create crop circles? Absolutely, yes, you could do that. In fact, uh, <clears throat> I don't mean to sound uh, comical here, but one of the things one of my one of my dad's sort of uh, garage projects before he, shortly before he died, was he wanted to disassemble a microwave oven, put it up on a platform between two ladders, and create a crop circle in his backyard. <laughs> so uh, it can be done. Right. Absolutely. Right. Simple. Do you have any theories as to to what these crop circles are, what they mean? Are they creating little road signs for them, for themselves? I have- my dad had a theory, and uh, I think part of the uh, game they're playing is that the medium is the message. They are demonstrating this techno- technology to us over and over and over again with the flight characteristics of the saucers and the crop circles. They are making it very they sh- they're making it very obvious, or it should be very obvious to Earth scientists and physicists what they're doing. But we've been kind of blockheaded about it by clinging to our old physics and not accepting the new physics. And uh, so we haven't uh, figured it out yet, except perhaps my father figured it out. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Start feeling rejuvenated right now. Order your one-month supply of Super Tea and GI Joy today from GetTheTea.com. This Super Tea is specifically formulated to cleanse your kidneys, liver, colon, and blood all at once. And of course, the colon is one of the most ignored organs in the human body. The faster that waste is eliminated from the body, the less time that waste sits in our intestines, spreading toxins to our bloodstream. Life Change Tea is not the same tea that you buy in the store off the shelf. Life Change Tea is eight powerful herbs blended together to maximize your health. 
you also get 60 capsules of the GI Joy, which contains colostrum, which helps to assist in maintaining a healthy digestive tract. It also helps maintain a healthy immune system. Super Tea and GI Joy from Get the Tea for a healthy digestion and a healthy immune system. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. Consult your healthcare professional before using this product. If you're pregnant or breastfeeding, do not use without consulting a healthcare professional. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. David Elzefon is here talking about anti-gravity science developed by his late father, Dr. Frederick Elzefon. Give us another UFO riddle solved, David. Certainly, certainly. Um, well, I mentioned that um, I have a couple of them that I think are, are really interesting solutions. One of them is the <clears throat> the fact that I've, I've discussed how to decrease the effect of gravity to cool gravity in the vicinity of your vehicle almost to zero, but that in and of itself is not enough to propel a vehicle. You only have created um, a shell that used to weigh, let's say, two tons, now weighs absolutely nothing, like a, a compass needle. But you still have to have something to propel it through the air, see, because in and of itself, removing gravity doesn't cause it to fly. <clears throat> and so you have a lot of different options at that point. You can, well, for example, uh, in the book, uh, I designed just off the top of my head a, um, a kind of a sky car that used turbojets and it could fly at Mach 3 using two turbojets about the size of a rolled-up newspaper each. And uh, that's because you have no inertia and you have no gravity affecting your vehicle. So you need a very small force to propel it through the atmosphere. And by the way, it's pushing against the atmosphere behind the vehicle. Um, because as the uh, exploding fuel leaves the uh, jet, it gains mass and it pushes against the air behind the vehicle. And so, of course, all this needs R&D, but any jet will do, any rocket will do, and here's the, here's the really beautiful one, uh, even electromagnetism would uh, do just great as a, as a means of propulsion. And in fact, you see this in, um, in, in the interior of the saucers that Bob Lazar allegedly saw it, uh, S4. Yes. In, uh, yeah. If you recall, he said that uh, the, the 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 belly of the saucer had three um, gravity wave uh, amplifiers in the bottom that looked like sort of like garbage cans, or but very uh, smooth. I, I showed my dad the model of the um, sport model saucer, and he looked at it and he said, "Those are not gravity amplifiers. Those are electromagnets." Because once you have an inertia-free, massless vehicle like the sport model, and you put electromagnets in the bottom of it, you can repel against the Earth's magnetic field. And as my dad put it, uh, it would fly like a bat out of hell. <laughs> <coughs> and you could, easily, you could easily leave the Earth's gravitational field in a, soundlessly in a matter of a few seconds. And, of course, we've seen this over and over again that... Uh, the, the flying saucer is hovering over the trees, 
and suddenly it takes off like a bat out of hell uh, for the stars, and it's gone in a, soundlessly in a flash. And it's not using rockets, it's not using jets, it's just pushing against Earth's uh, electromagnetic field. Is it possible that they, the Defense Department and others weren't interested in what your father had because they already had it? They already have it? I remember reading, I'm, I'm not this old, but I remember reading about reports dating back to the 19, late 1940s, and I believe it was Boeing, talking about how close they were uh, to achieving anti-gravitics, and then all of a sudden, in the 1950s, an iron curtain descended and we heard nothing more from Boeing about this. Is it possible they already have it? That, and, th and this accounts for the majority, the vast majority of craft that we're seeing uh, in the skies. These are advanced American uh, aviation craft. Uh, absolutely, and I have a I have another view of this, which um, actually fits into conspiracy theories um, quite well. Uh, okay, so to back up in history a little bit. Um, as you, as you recall, I think from the first show, I, I mentioned that my father's first uh, gravitation um, paper, uh, which was encouraged and inspired by his conversation with Richard Feynman at Caltech <clears throat> in 1954, it was published in 1960, and the Air Force that year was doing a survey of um, gravitation research worldwide. They wanted to know uh, if, uh, well, at the time there was a, Soviet scientist named Kirill Stanyukovich, and he was um, boasting that the Soviet Union had anti-gravity vehicles and they could fly easily into space and maneuver around out there like a jet plane, and the Air Force was getting concerned about that. Now, you see, they would be concerned about it whether or not they had anti-gravity vehicles. So um, they commissioned a physicist named uh, Dr. Maurice Garbell of Garbell Research Associates in San Francisco to do a study of gravitation research worldwide, and that was the very same year that my father's paper had come out. And now to fast forward through a lot of talk, um, he had a meeting with the head of the Foreign Technology Division at Ames Research. And he walked out on that meeting because they told him they would have to classify that project, a project using his technology higher than the Manhattan Project. And uh, that's pretty damned high. Mm. Uh, my, my family's had, had some association with the Manhattan Project, and I know exactly what, they, what he was talking about, and so did my dad, so did my mom, and they didn't want any part of it. And as I told you also, my dad had a strict rule about this technology being intended for the benefit of all humanity and not for, the, for use as a weapon. Though I think it would be kind of hard to weaponize it. Um, without the kind of power source that the aliens have. And we don't have that as far as I know. But anyway, that was the first uh, bump into the uh, deep state that my dad had, and he walked out on them. But I don't think they stopped uh, listening to him. Uh, he didn't have a technology at the time, but in 1981, he did announce that technology. And now, years later... I was at a UFO convention on the, in the 1990s, and um, a total stranger walked up to me, and he, and he said, um, 
he looked at my name tag and he, and I think he feigned surprise. He said, "Oh, are you related to uh, Dr. Frederick Alzafon?" I said, "Yeah, he's my father." And he said, "Oh," and he shook my hand. He said, "Oh, glad to meet you. Did you know that uh, the CIA uh, retained, uh, let's see, contracted with 17 mathematicians to study your father's 1981 paper?" And uh, you know what they concluded? I, I said, well, that's news to me. And he said, well, they concluded that every equation was correct. And I said, I didn't catch your name. He had a name tag on that was flipped over. Uh -huh. and, yeah, accidentally, I'm sure. And uh, he uh, bowed out of the conversation right away. He said he, he said he had to talk to somebody. He just spotted across the room. And as he was leaving, he said, you better not tell your dad about that because it might upset him. And uh, I thought that was really, really weird. It was just one of those moments that if you're in the UFO field for too long, you're going to have experiences like this. Yes. I, I preferred to avoid them at all, at all costs. And so I, I followed his advice. And I never told my dad until about two months before he died, which... Uh, that was how many years later? Uh, eight. Let's see. He died in 2012. That was 12. That's about about 18 years almost. And I never opened my mouth about it. And he was very, very upset because what it indicated, and now this is getting back to your question, uh, is that the um, the deep state was um, uh, the black world was working on his technology that they. And I think this is what why they wanted it, because, yes, I think they had managed to imitate alien technology during the 50s, <clears throat> and they got it to work, but they had no idea why it worked. After all, when Bob Lazar went out to S4, he came back saying that they were using general relativity to, um, to figure out these, the propulsion mechanisms of these vehicles. And from my father's theory, I know that that approach would come up dry unless you were to, you know, bend and twist uh, general relativity like a pretzel and make it do something it wasn't intended to do. But on the other hand, his theory provided the technology, and not only that, it explained all the effects that they would be observing with UFOs. So I think he provided them with the theory, and I think that the theory then led to improvements in the technology they would not have been able to make otherwise. Did he get any credit for it? Did he even know they were doing it? Absolutely not. And the other thing I've just told you is conjecture. I, right, right. I, I don't know it for sure, but I have the feeling it's true, especially if the story about the 17 mathematicians, I mean, I can't even, I can't even vouch for the source that he was reliable, except he seemed, it seemed awfully weird that he'd come up and tell me something like that. Um, that, that if that's true, then maybe my scenario is true, and maybe they are they did use it to improve their uh, the functioning of their existing craft. You said something to me the last time. Again, I'll direct people to episode eighty nine if they want to hear part one, uh, and there you get all of the science from David Elzefon explaining his late father's work. But but you you can't even get the interest of people like Elon Musk or Robert Bigelow. I mean, this is the business that they're in, and they're not interested. No, well, maybe if I could speak to them one-on-one, -on -one, I could I could get them interested. But the problem is, if you've ever tried to... Now, it may not be true for a, a um, talk show host, but 
for somebody like me who tries to approach an organization like this, uh, one encounters <clears throat> a wall of flappers, people whose job it is to keep you out, to ward you off, because it isn't just me who has a, a genuinely interesting project to show them, but it's literally thousands of people who have crackpot ideas that they invented in their garage and, or saw in a vision or something like that, and they have no means to distinguish what I'm trying to tell them from the, the, the legions of crackpots that they, they need. So yes, I contacted all of those people, sent them multiple letters, and never got a response at all. How much would you need to make a prototype? Uh, a flying saucer, I mean. How much would you need? I think the first step is to repeat the 1994 experiments, because as soon as you were able to de demonstrate uh, gravity control, and yes, you could make something float in, in the first demonstration, simply by buoyancy. Yeah, I mean, if I built a sphere, which, by the way, has axial symmetry, and put a radar generator in the center of it and electromagnets around the sides of the interior, and it was made of aluminum and had iron, uh, colloidal iron embedded in it, I could make it float <coughs> simply because it would weigh nothing and it would displace enough air that it would lift off the ground. That would be enough right there to pull down unlimited backing for phase two, which would be a drone. And then phase three would be two kinds, two kinds of, of vehicles. One for terrestrial flight with, uh, say, one or two passengers, and one for leaving the planet's atmosphere and going into space. A space shuttle, more or less. Uh, that would be probably be saucer-shaped or spheric, spherically shaped. <coughs> and it wouldn't be too difficult to, if you take all the intermediate steps to arrive at that point. And I would say, okay, let me give you a time frame. To repeat the 1994 experiments and engineer that sphere, that floating sphere, I would say would take less than a year, uh, maybe even as little as six months if you gave me enough engineers and, um, and they... Uh, and enough um, um, access to materials and so forth. It, it would be kind of costly to put this thing together, but it could be done very quickly because we know enough now to do that. Then um, we'd have a big uh, show. We'd announce it to the world or maybe only to a select group of investors. <coughs> and at that point, I would say we'd have unlimited fundings to create a drone. And the purpose of doing a drone first, and it would take probably two years, <coughs> maybe as little as one year, would be the R&D. There are a number of engineering problems I haven't talked about, but they'd have to be overcome. And um, to design a safe, a craft that was safe for human beings and was effective in deploying the gravity control effect to the hull of the vehicle. And see, it's very difficult to maintain this effect over a, a large surface, and we have to study on how to, uh, how to do that. And that's what R&D is all about. So that would take maybe another couple of years. And I would say within four years, five years, you would be launching into space in your own spaceship. Remarkable. Well, we just have to work on getting you a bigger platform. That's all. Uh, <laughs> I hope it comes soon. Well, I will um, be hosting Coast to Coast July 27th. And uh, if you're game, you're on. I'm game. All right. We will do that. And uh, we'll also have you back on uh, Conspiracy Unlimited in our sort of ongoing intermittent series on anti-gravity science. David, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. 
my pleasure, uh, Richard, and I will see you again soon. Well, give us a website, please. Oh, yes, a website. I'll uh, get to plug my website. Gravitycontrol.io. Gravitycontrol.io. Yes. Right. Control.io. Okay. All right, folks, check it out. That's your homework. Thank you again, David. Okay, thank you, Richard. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>